Hello, and welcome to the Branches of Time. I'm Henson. And I'm Amber. Thank you for joining us today from wherever you're listening. We want to wish everyone a happy spring. There has been a lot going on in the world this last month. It can be hard to watch what's happening in the news. But amidst all of the sadness, we've also seen good in the form of small acts of generosity, compassion, and true heroes. In today's episode, we are going to look back to another time when war is raging and celebrate some of the silent heroes. Today's episode is all about the codes of World War II and the people who made them and broke them. But before we dive in, we're going to take a little look back on the calendar as we do the the history history of today. We are recording on March 30th. Today we are going way back into history, probably the farthest back we have gone on this podcast, to the year 240 BCE. This day in 240 BCE was the first ever recorded passage of Halley's Comet. Halley's Comet is a comet that's visible to the Earth every 75 to 76 years. It's the only short period comet you could see from Earth. This means it's the only one that's possible for a person to see with the naked eye twice in one lifetime. And this has been the history of today. Now let's get into the main topic of our episode. I think that codes and ciphers are fascinating, which is one of the reasons we chose this topic. You might think that codes and ciphers are just in spy movies, but they are a real huge part of military history. During World War II, there was lots of different codes used. As we researched this topic, we found more information than we could possibly cover in one of our podcasts. So today, we've selected a couple of our favorite codes to talk about. And at the end of the episode, we'll recommend some places you can go to learn more about this fascinating subject. The first thing we want to talk about is the purple machine. Let's start by clarifying that the name purple had nothing to do with color. When a new code was intercepted from Japan by the Allies before and during World War II, they would give it a nickname, and they happened to use the names of colors. Orange was the name given to the first code, and purple was the code name for the hardest code to break. By 1939, Japan was using machines to generate and decode their messages instead of pen and paper to code their messages the messages would be put through the machines to code them, then sent over wire and had to be decoded by a copy of the same machine sent to the, set to the identical setting. The U.S. had a growing team of code breakers working to not only crack the codes, but to build the machines used to do it. Based on intercepted messages, these bright-minded code breakers would figure out how to recreate machines that could perform the identical function of the ones used to send the message, sight unseen. I think that's remarkable. So how did the purple machine work? It used the Latin alphabet we are familiar with. It was programmed into a pegboard with wires assigned to each letter. Then those went through the cyber wheels or rotors. If you're trying to picture the machine, think of a typewriter joined by wires to a circuit board, which is also connected to a series of four rotors that shifted the type in different combinations. This would make the type come out on a second typewriter in the coded text. One more twist, the typewriter was built to be compatible with English, 
Romaji, and Roman, adding more complexity through language choice. It was pretty big. Big enough that it couldn't really be used at a combat site. This was a similar idea for other machines used by Japan, but it had more rotors, and that meant more possible combinations that they would change, and then and they would change them every day. And because the combinations could be changed so frequently, and the language being used for the mes- message could be changed. It was very hard to identify patterns in the intercepted messages. This thing had over 70 million possible arrangements. Understand that patterns are what code breakers live for. You have to find patterns if you want a shot at breaking a code. Quick side note. Purple is a little similar to the Enigma machine, which was a code machine used by Nazis during World War II. We're not going to talk about the Enigma machine today, But if you are interested in code machines, you should look it up. When the Allies broke the Enigma code, it gave them an advantage they needed at the time. Purple was one of the most complex methods of its time. It sounds impossible to break, but there was a team of people who did just that. In a place called Arlington Hall, the U.S. had gathered smart people from different walks of life to help work on codes. This was before World War II had broken out, and the U.S. was ramping up their code-breaking efforts. William Friedman is one of the people best known for working on the Purple Machine. It was really a team effort that broke the code over time. A woman named Genevieve Feinstein is the one who found the game-changing clue in 1940. She was the first person to recognize the much-needed pattern in the messages. Because of her discovery, the team was able to break the code and build their own version of the purple machine. Feinstein had originally planned to be a math teacher, but took a job as a clerk after college when she couldn't get a teaching job. It was her high test scores on a civil service mathematics test in 1939 that led her to be recruited by Friedman to his code-breaking staff. Clearly, having broken the purple machine code didn't solve all the problems. War still broke out, and not all of the information was transmitted using purple. But it did make a significant difference, and in many instances, it helped the odds in in favor of the Allies. Even though the code was broken before World War II started, the breaking of the code had to remain a secret until after the war ended. If Japan found out that their unbreakable code machine was compromised, they wouldn't have used it anymore, and the Allies knew they needed the information. As it was, the purple machine was used through, through World War II with no idea that it had been compromised. Imagine breaking one of the hardest codes ever and not being able to tell anyone about it. I know. People are finally learning the names and stories of people like Genevieve Feinstein. There is one other code that we wanted to talk about. As you probably gathered already, codes were very important in World War II. Everyone needed to send messages without being understood by the enemy. And everyone was in search of an unbreakable code, or at least as close as they could get to one. 
Maybe the closest thing to an unbreakable code that was researched at the time was achieved by a group called the Navajo Code Talkers. Navajo Code Talkers played important roles in both World War I and World War II. In World War I, eight members of a Native American tribe served in the U.S. military in France and used their language as code. The Germans had no idea what they were hearing in the communications they intercepted. In World War II, their involvement grew and the codes evolved. Over 500 people joined. About 400 of those were from many different Native American tribes. The Navajo Code was not just a Native American language. In World War II, it was much more complex and took quite a process to develop. The U.S. Marines recreated looking for Navajo soldiers to serve at a top-secret project. Over 200 were interviewed and 29 were selected. When they showed up to start work, they still had no idea what they would be asked to do. These men were put in a room and told to use their native language to devise an unbreakable code. The only further explanation they got to begin with was that they would need a Navajo word to be associated with each letter of the alphabet. The door was locked and they had to work from there. They were shocked. They had been punished at their school for using their native tongue, but now it was a sign, an assignment for them to make a code based on it. They started working together as a team. To give you an idea of how the code works, I'll give you an example. They would use a word in English to represent each letter, but replace it with the Navajo word in the code, creating a double encryption. A became red ant, not the English word for ant, but the Navajo word pronounced wolachi. B became bear, pronounced shush in Navajo. This made the code even harder for outsiders to crack because they there was often no direct translation and pattern were hidden. Once the code was developed, over 500 code talkers were assigned and worked predominantly with the Marines. It gave them a critical advantage. Much of the success along the Pacific relied on the code talkers and their passing of information. They used their skills to help in a famous battle known as D-Day and passed over 800 messages between the command center and the battlefield. During the battle of Iwujama, more than a dozen Navajo code talkers were killed in action, and more than two, two dozen of them were wounded. But much like breaking codes, making codes does not get you instant recognition and praise. That's right. They also had to keep their work missions a secret. It remained completely classified until the late 1960s, and it was only 30 years ago that the Navajo Code Talkers were publicly recognized. In 2001, all of the veterans that were still alive were awarded the Congressional Gold Medal, the highest recognition that could be given by Congress. An interesting part of this story is that most of the Code Talkers had no idea that's what they would be doing when they joined the military. There was a, the Code Group of 29 people who were recruited and helped develop the code, but it was highly classified. Almost no one else knew about it. Peter MacDonald was one of those ones who ended up as a code talker. He said he joined the military because he liked the uniform and many of his relatives were in the Marine Corps. 
I'm going to read a few of McDonald's own words. He said, quote, A dictionary of Navajo code words was developed for all of us, the Navajo code talkers, to learn and memorize, starting with 260 code words in 1942. As the war expanded, so did the code words. By the time the war ended in 1945, there were over 600 code words to be memorized. Navajo code talkers also grew from 29 in 1942 to over 400 by the end of World War II in 1945. Japanese tried to break the code, but were unsuccessful. The U.S. Marine Corps tells us that Navajo code was the only military code in modern history never broken by an enemy. End quote. The only code never broken by the enemy. I guess it's really earned its nickname as the Unbreakable Code. There is so much more about codes and ciphers out there, and so much that we couldn't fit into this episode. If you're interested, we encourage you to check out some of these resources. First, the book Code Girls by Lisa Mundy. There is a version for young adults and kids, and an audiobook version as well. The book Who Were the Navajo Code Talkers? This book includes an example of the Navajo code words. And we didn't even have time to talk about Elizabeth Friedman. Check out the kid-friendly documentary, Codebreaker, Spy Hunter. She's another code-breaking hero. It's been a couple episodes since we've had our quiz corner. Let's remind everyone the last quiz question. Right. This was back from our episode on the tomato. The question was, where is the world's largest known tomato plant growing today? And the answer is Walt Disney World, the tomato tree in Epcot, once had a harvest of 32,000 tomatoes in one year. That's a lot of ketchup. In honor of our topic today, we have a riddle for this episode's question. Feed me and I will live. Give me a drink and I will die. What am I? See if you can solve the riddle and the answer will be revealed to you on our next episode. And that brings us to the end of our episode. We hope you've learned something new. And we hope that if you found it interesting, you'll keep looking to learn more. Signing off till next time.